In a culture of wild political correctness, Echo of Fidelity brings you godly content in a godless world. From thought-provoking interviews to inspirational stories of saints and heroes, our show is firmly rooted in Catholic tradition. This is Echo of Fidelity. Our dear friend, the Pachamama Slayer, Alexander Schick. <laughs> Alexander Shiguel is, is here in the United States, and um, of course we had to invite him to come and speak because his reputation precedes him. <laughs> and I think most of you have, have met him already, if not the last time when he was here about two years ago, uh, certainly tonight. And i just say a few things about him first. It's important to know that, uh, first of all, uh, he's a noble. Okay, I asked him straight. He's a, yes, I am. Okay. He is a noble. He's from Austria. His family goes back 900 or 1,000 years. About that, okay. And uh, he's a convert from Lutheranism. And he's really a strong, traditional Catholic. And after he did his heroic deeds in Rome by <laughs> taking the pagan fertility goddess, Pachamama, a bad Pachamama. She's a, it's a really bad pagan goddess. And he went in, he didn't break into the church. It was open, he went in, he took them out. They filmed it and he threw them in the Tiber. And for that, he, 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 he achieved, I would say, worldwide fame virtually overnight because video of that went all over the world and was greeted with great praise and great fury, depending on who was doing the, the talking. So since then, he founded the St. Boniface Institute, which I'm sure he's going to fill us in on. And he's going to tell us about what's happening in Austria these days, as well as talk about the main subject that many of us, I think, are interested in, where will the German bishops scandal lead? Please uh, join me in welcoming Alexander Shiguel. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, I'm really happy to be here again. I remember this evening when I uh, gave my speech here very well. And it was a pleasure to be here, especially as I don't know if you're aware of that, but after my conversion, directly after my conversion, I was, when I was 15, not even half a year later, I met uh, Mr. Carlos Schaffer, um, who was the Austrian head of the um, Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family and Property. And so actually, since not even six months after my conversion, I was already, um, how can I say, <laughs> propagandized in the best way, <laughs> in the best way by Professor Blinio's teaching, uh, teachings and therefore always um, was a big um, friend of the TFP and also talk and work together with TFP in Germany and Austria and Italy since then in diff on different issues. So yes, the main question which um, comes up if you talk about the German bishops and, and what they cause with the big confusion, especially of the so-called synodal way, is actually how is the Catholic Church in the German-speaking areas doing? I want to speak about the whole German-speaking areas. Obviously, Austria is not part of the German bishop 
also uh, Bishop's Conference, whatever this is, it's, it's a little bit strange to talk about this nowadays because they hate each other right now. Um, and, but, but still, Austria and Germany always go very parallel to each other, same language, right next to each other, etc. And I don't know if you're aware of that, but for example, the, the, the Archbishop of Salz Salzburg, which is in Austria, is the Primas Germania. So it's actually the head of the German bishops in hierarchy, at least in traditional hierarchy, and therefore still actually has some positions in German bishops' conferences up until today. And I think I can talk about this together in a way. Let's talk about the last two years, not only because the Synodal Way is what started in those years, but also in order to see how is actually the state of the church in, in the German-speaking area. We saw in numbers a big um, decline in Catholics. So many people left the Catholic Church, especially following the ongoing um, news about the sexual abuse scandals uh, in especially um, very, very modernist parts of the Catholic Church. We have to make this very clear. The, all those scandals never come up in traditional, in traditional parts of the uh, Catholic Church. So let's say very rarely come up, but very, very often, especially in those organizations which are very well connected with the 68 revolution and this whole idea back then of free love and all the all these other aspects but in general we have we can say that in germany actually the traditional um, um, catholic faith is growing very very quickly and very rapidly just to give you a few numbers uh, the biggest traditional seminary of of all of europe is located in germany It's a, a seminar at the FSSP called Vigratspad, which is uh, actually located in the south of Germany, in the very south of Germany, only half an hour ago from, uh, away from Austria, only 20 minutes away from Switzerland. Um, this um, very seminary just had the first ordinations ever since the Second Vatican Council held by an active German bishop. The Bishop of Augsburg, who just ordained nine, I think, deacons in a wonderful, beautiful church in the south of Baden-Württemberg. So just for you to give you a little bit good news about Germany, not everything you, you hear in the news is true. Um, by the way, if when Roe v. Wade was overturned, which is in my eyes one of the biggest crises of our times, um, in European media we heard that there were huge, huge riots in DC. Wow. <laughs> my friend Clemens, who sits over there, and me, we arrived in DC on this very day And even though I, I should not be happy, I should not be unhappy about this, but we were actually expecting riots as part of the um, entertainment of our trip. <laughs> but unfortunately, no riots happen. And so I want to now turn this over and say the same thing you hear about the German bishops. It's not true. It's not everything. So the German bishops are terrible in average. There are a few actually quite okay ones and nobody ever hears about in Germany and Austria and Switzerland. And in general, the German Catholic Church is going through a purification process right now in Germany, as it does here in the United States. Maybe a little bit slower in Germany than here, but it does. Let me give you a few good news first, because I'm talking about bad things, uh, I think, the whole evening and with everyone I meet here. Because unfortunately, you know, living in a constant, uh, in, a, in a world where you are constantly reminded of original sin brings this with it, with you, uh, with it. Um, I want to say that in Germany right now, after Traditions Custodes, Germany was the only country in Europe where in no diocese the traditional mass was in any form harmed after Traditions Custodes. I don't know if you're aware of this, but in Austria it was harmed, in, in the Netherlands very heavily, in, in France, as you know, very heavily. In France even up to a point where a certain diocese was completely suppressed, completely suppressed. In Germany, nothing happened. 
And so now the question comes, where, why is this in Germany? First of all, what you have to understand is Germany is not a very centralized state. So it's a very decentralized state, not as decentralized as the United States, but it is very decentralized, especially for Western European standards, where you have France, which has only one center, it's Paris, and you have Spain, where there's only, well, two centers, um, it's Barcelona a little bit, and, and especially Madrid, and Italy, where everything is in Rome, and things like this. That's not the case in Germany. In Germany, the big capitals are not actually very big. So Berlin has four million inhabitants. Also, Vienna already has two million inhabitants. Paris, compare this, in the Isle of Paris, nearly 20 million people live. So just to compare this a little bit. So how can we see as well, how can we see that this is connected to what I'm talking today about the Catholics? The interesting aspect is if you learn about Catholics in Germany, you always hear the centralized aspects. You learn about the Catholic uh, Catholic um, um, synods or the German the German um, um, synodal way as they call it. And you hear about all the terrible things they are asking, they are doing there. But what you don't see from the outside is that the only people talking there, meeting, uh, meeting themselves there, are obviously the leftist bishops and a handful of representatives of Catholic organizations which do not have any members anymore. So what, this is what you have to understand. If you go to Germany and you go to a normal Catholic parish, and say not a leftist parish, but let's say a good Novus Auto parish, not a traditional one, then you will normally find hardly anyone who is a member of one of those organizations which right now organizes another way. It's not a thing in Germany. So what you see there is a very interesting, um, 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 a very interesting detail. It's more or less the, the big end of the very modern modern idea that you can organize the church as if it would be a modern company or an organization. You have all those different, we call it in German, Verbandskatholizismus. So it means being Catholic because you're part of an organization. And that's very, very um, bad. And it was actually created in the 19th century as a reaction to Bismarck, telling the Germans that they are not allowed to do Catholic things anymore. And you know, there was this cultural fight, the cultural fight between the Catholics and the Protestants. And so the Catholics reacted by saying, well, okay, if I'm not allowed to do anything Catholic anymore, I now found an organization taking care of, I don't know, students' needs. And they secretly actually do the Catholic formation. So that's what, the, what was, was the good origin of all of this. But this origin was only good in a time where this fight needed this answer. Afterwards, exactly this was perverted. So now all the Catholic organizations in Germany are actually one of the worst things you will find. They are the ones who organized this rainbow action. You all saw this where priests and 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 so-called priests and deacons and so-called deacons and lots of other people came out saying that they actually follow a sodomy lifestyle um, publicly and they got blessings by certain also priests and and unfortunately also some bishops so what we see here is really the last big action of this completely dying aspect of catholicism in germany Let's now look in order to understand better how the real Catholic Church in Germany is doing. And I'm not saying real as I, it's not my judgment, obviously. I hope that also those bishops will obviously return to the faith back. And I hope that lots of those priests will find out that this was wrong, actually, what they said. And will also come back to the faith. But in general, we can say that the Catholic teaching is quite clear about all those aspects. And so I now want to talk about the Catholics who actually follow the Catholic teaching. In the last two years, we saw a massive fight against the Catholic Church under a different name, under the so-called name of health, 
we were not allowed to go to Holy Mass anymore, not allowed to receive Holy Communion in the, in the, in the good ways on the tongue. We were not allowed to um, receive the last unction anymore. And many dioceses of Germany, by the way, officially the bishop said that the last unction is not allowed. By the way, in every of those dioceses, whenever the people needed it, there was always a priest there who handed it out still and who still, um, um, how do you say it, um, performed the last unction, you would say. Um, so, so I don't, uh, just for you to know, hardly anyone died without it, but still to know that this really happened. And we saw in the Catholic world, in the whole German-speaking area, something really, really beautiful coming up. To explain this a little bit more, I want to go a little bit back in history and explain what I think is the biggest advantage of being European, even in those, uh, our times nowadays. And I talk uh, to you not in a way that I say, well, I'm European, we are so much better than you, because I believe that the Americans actually play a very, very important role. And actually, you could be way more European right now than we are. Look at you, you just overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, we live in a country where lots of, where lots of states, where in lots of states right now, while we speak, abortion is illegal, which is not the case in any country in Europe anymore, um, except Malta still, which is a little island, and you know, they still have restrictive abortion law, and the Vatican and Liechtenstein. So three really small countries are the last, you know, strongholds, and the rest is gone, even Ireland is gone, as you know. So let's talk about the good aspects of being European. In Europe, we do not understand ourselves as individuals so much as rather as families. So if you go through Europe, what you will always find out, and I see this among traditional Catholics here in the United States as well, by the way, you always talk to people and you talk to him as a member of a certain family. So for example, in German, it's very impolite to speak to someone with the first name. If you meet someone, you always only address his last name. You know the same in American. So Mr. Whatever, Mr. Smith or Mr. Chuguel or Mr. Noel and, and uh, Mr. Bascom and so on. And you would only go to the name where this uh, person was baptized with if you're really close friends. So if you're someone who can more or less be so much into his, the other person's family that you're allowed to use his baptism name. Um, obviously, in the recent decades, this changed through modernism quite a lot. So right now, you normally find out immediately if you talk to a leftist or a non-leftist, by the way, he approaches you. If he say, says, ah, hello, Alexander, more or less, or maybe not, doesn't know my name, but as you know, in German, there's a word you use for, for the <coughs> official way to address someone and for, for the non-official way to address something, then you immediately know you talk with a leftist. But in general... The family structures are what really makes Europe big. I'll give you an example. Whenever we do any, anything in any traditional community in Europe, it's always done by families. It's never done by individuals. So normally you would have the different families of a parish organizing something. Those families normally are not there since one generation, two generations or three generations, but rather in average for 10 generations or more. So normally everyone who comes from a certain place will tell you immediately, well, my family has been here since 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, 500 years, 600 years, whatever. So for example, my family, and it's not to show off, it's just to prove a point, was living in Tyrol for 890 years. We were then kicked out because we were expropriated and now in Vienna since only 120 years. And this is really short. If I talk to any typical Viennese family and they can trace 
back the Viennese roots 400, 500 years and can tell you how they fought against the Turks. Then you talk to a normal Viennese family. So what you see is that um, in order to understand how the resistance against this whole modernism coming from corrupted church clergy, unfortunately, but mainly from, from organizations which use the church in order to promote their uh, diabolic agendas, um, this does not work if the families on the ground, more or less, who are actually the ones who form society, resist as families. So what do I mean by this? I mean by this that what we saw in the last two years was that every family I know, every family, every Catholic family I know, I'm not kidding, by the way, every Catholic family I know was involved in organizing underground masses when it was completely forbidden, was involved in helping priests going to the sick and to the dying, was involved in helping little children get baptized, getting baptized, etc. Every of those families. So whenever you hear about the Germans being totally insane, that's not completely wrong. <laughs> but it does not reflect the life of the faithful Germans at all. Faithful Germany looks like this. When the Catholic tradition came back, especially after, after you know, the uh, splitting, being split up in the SSPX and FSSP, because the FSSP is quite, was as the SSPX back then, and then FSSP was the strongest traditional movement in Germany, and up until today it is, the Germans had altogether 20 priests, in all of the German-speaking area, including Austria and Switzerland, who publicly celebrated traditional mass, being not in schism with Rome, but rather with totally normal, you know, diocesan priests, so FSSP priests, whatever. 20 priests. Right now, we count altogether 480 priests. Officially, officially. When we did our little, uh, our little fight in Vienna, where we said, well, now the Traditionis Custodis is coming in, let's see how many Catholic priests in, in Vienna actually tra celebrate traditional mass. We found out that it was not, I always knew it was like 20-ish, around 20. We even out it was nearly 40 people actually celebrated traditional mass. Nearly 40 priests, actually, that's not, that's not a small number, actually. It's actually really, really good for a city with only 2 million inhabitants. It's actually really, really good. So at the end of the day, we found out that actually the tradition, the Catholic Church is growing. So now the big question is, why don't you, as Americans, why aren't you able to see this? Why aren't you able to see this? There are two reasons for this. First of all, the enemy's propaganda is really bad, and they want you to believe that the Catholic Church is dying. They want you to believe it, even though you as Americans know that, for example, here in America, it's actually growing. Um, but they want you to believe that everything is dying. They want you to believe Europe is ruined with stupid um, child-molesting priests, and those priests all have girlfriends or are homosexual. That's more or less what they want you to believe. They want you to believe that especially about the areas of Europe which once were in charge of actually defending the faith. So what they will tell you is um, the movement in Germany, especially the whole Roman Empire. So the whole Roman Empire is very bad. Everything is dying there. You can go to those cities in order to visit them as a tourist, but don't expect anything coming out of those countries anymore. And they want you to believe that everyone goes insane, everyone is completely decadent, and everyone lives only a life of more or less modernist errors. The real life does not look like this. In general, we see a huge growth among tradition. We see a huge growth, growth in, uh, in vocations, by the way. So there are the two big seminaries of the German-speaking area is the traditional seminary of Wiegertswart, of FSSP, and the non-traditional but quite conservative seminary of the Heiligenkreuz Cistercians next to Vienna. The Heiligenkreuz Cistercians are a monastery which is not traditional yet. All the young ones celebrate traditional mass, by the way, um, which has 100 monks. 100 Cistercian monks, the biggest Western Cistercian abbey in the world. 
It's the biggest Western, and it's in the middle of the German-speaking area. It's next to Vienna, which is the former capital of the whole Roman Empire. Attached to this, and I tell you, not everything is good there. You know, they are still very modernist in certain in certain things, but they're very solid if it comes to any, every really important aspect of our life. If it comes to dying, if it comes to baptism, if it comes to marriage, they're very solid in all those important aspects of our faith. They attach to the to the uh, monasteries a seminary, which is used by all the traditional uh, bishops uh, we still find in Germany and Austria or Switzerland. So, especially the Bishop of Liechtenstein. I don't know if you know the Bishop of Liechtenstein, Monsignor Haas, very famous in traditional circles. He sends, for example, all his seminarians there. The, bisto, uh, the Bishop of Chur, Vitus Honda, he's no, no longer the Bishop of Chur, but he also sends his seminarians there. The Bishop of Salzburg sends also tons of his seminarians there. The Bishop of Regensburg sends some of his seminarians there. And every one of them is getting very solid not nothing compared to FSSP in Vikatspad, which actually run a really wonderful seminary, but quite solid Catholic teaching, and all of them get exposed to traditional Mass. All of them. There are tons of teachers, uh, priest teachers, who, who celebrate traditional Mass. That's a part of German-speaking Catholicism you never hear of. You only hear about all the perverted bishops. You only hear about all the corruption. And so the next question, I already raised it, is why don't you hear of it? Because of money, mainly, uh, because as you know, the United States is the biggest funder of the Catholic Church in the world, and you know, the second biggest funder is Germany. And do you know why Germany is the second biggest funder? It's because in Germany there are a few dioceses which own a huge amount of real estate and companies and, and, and media concerns and farming land and so on, namely the diocese of Munich and the Diocese of Cologne, especially those two, but also the other dioceses are rich. Why is it that they have so much money? First of all, we have to know that Cologne, being one of the oldest cities of the German-speaking world, I don't know if you know, but it was founded by the Romans already more than 2,000 years ago, and it was a city since 2,000 years. So it's a 2,000-year-old city, just imagine this. Um, because uh, from the beginning, the Catholic Church played a very important role there. Cologne was always ruled by a bishop, by the prince um, Archbishop of Cologne, who was always a cardinal, ruled by it. So he was actually the prince of this whole uh, area. There was no, nothing, no one above him. And Cologne was one of the big cities which were able to actually elect the whole Roman Empire, Emperor. So you see an old city which always was always connected to the Catholic Church and where the city itself was a Catholic city. So it was everything was owned always by the church there, like Salzburg as well. Munich is quite similar because Munich was officially not the Diocese of Munich, but the Diocese of Freising, which is also an independent territory in the whole Roman Empire, having its own um, real estate and everything. So the, it, it's old money, more or less. And when Hitler found out that it is very, very difficult to get the Catholic uh, Germans to leave their faith, to leave the church, etc., he placed a time bomb in the middle of the Holy Roman Empire, the former Holy Roman Empire. He said that from now on, in order to be part of the Catholic Church, you have to pay a tax on, so on, uh, based on your faith. This was introduced in Austria and in Germany and all the other parts which were back then part of the Third Reich. It was abolished in every other part except Germany and Austria. In Austria it was changed, so in Austria now the tax is collected not by the government but by the people who live, by the, by the clerks of the church itself. But in Germany up until today the money, if you work a normal job, automatically one part of this normal job is taken away of, uh, of you and is used as a tax. What happens is a very strange mixture between church and state you will find in Germany. And I, as a traditional Catholic, I'm not per se against the mixture of church and state. This could work very well. But suddenly you have a situation where the bishops are officially paid, more or less by the, Catholic, by the, government, by the government, 
uh, in a way a normal representative of the government is paid. So they are attached to the government in a very unhealthy way, which um, now provides, gives the government the possibility to actually put quite some force on the Catholic Church. <coughs> what else did we see? Hitler not only um, invented the church tax, but also expropriated all the big monasteries in Germany. By the way, not in Austria. In Austria, all the big monasteries still have a huge amount of land. Germany, they don't. In Germany, you have a huge Benedictine Abbey, 800 years old, and it owns one acre of field, which obviously is not enough to pay for the house. So at the end, all those buildings of the Catholic Church, in, uh, which are not owned by the big dioceses, only, are only maintained because the German government gives them money. And it gives them a lot of money. Have you ever, have you ever been to Germany? Yeah. I, I do not believe you will find one monastery in Germany which is not renovated. It does not exist. If you go to Italy and France, it looks very different. So if you look at Germany, you will see everything is maintained in a very nice way. So whenever a Catholic comes and says, well, we don't want to do something against the line of the government, the government says, well, okay, well, then that's it with the money. Here, your money goes away. That's it. And as soon as you do this, all those buildings are completely broke. Because none of them can exist without the government. Austria is, by the way, not like this. In Austria, the monasteries are very, very independent because they have tons of, um, um, of, of possessions since the medieval times. So the question, the next question we have to ask ourselves is why, if we talk about the issue, why you do not hear anything about the good Catholics in, in Germany and Austria, it's because the Catholics, in order to maintain Catholicism, in order to maintain the teaching, in order to have traditional mass, in order to have not only traditional mass, but also lots of other, lots of other good aspects of Catholic culture, they do it under the radar. They all do have to do it under the radar because as soon as it's on the radar, the bishop has to react just because of the government and because of social, because actually because of mainstream media. So what we see right now is the traditional Catholics in Germany decided not to go too public with traditionalism and not one German bishop forbid them because they don't care. They really don't care. They only think they don't want this bad press about them. They really do not care. What does it tell us about the church? Well. It's not, it's not a very good state of the church, I guess. But at the end of the day, it just tells us that the Germans need to pray and pray and pray and sacrifice a lot. And then God will give them good bishops again. Right now, after those hundred years of actually destruction of traditional Catholic world, of the expropriation of the monasteries, of the destruction of all those convents, and Eastern Germany, through communism, lost all his priests. Eastern Germany was completely priestless in many parts for lots of times. And now if you go to Eastern Germany, like Saxony-Anhalt, you have a friend of mine who's a parish priest there. He has a parish the size of half of Austria. It's uh, his, his parish. Now it was divided into two parishes. Just to imagine the size differences between Austria, in Vienna itself, we have more than 1,000 priests. So just to give you an, uh, a little bit of uh, um, overview. So let's now put this a little bit aside and uh, come to a main question which comes up. How does the future life of the Catholic, the average Catholic family in Europe um, look like? I believe, and that's now my personal belief, it's, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a prophet, obviously, but I, I'm, I, I want to state this once because I think it's very important. I think the future of the Catholic Church lies really in the understanding of its tradition and its teaching and our Lord himself in the Holy, in the, in the Holy Eucharist. What do I mean by this? We saw in the last two years that when the church was attacked, when the Catholics were attacked, when we were forced to go underground, that actually the families are willing to do quite a lot for it. And we saw that not only if it comes to this question, so the question of the church itself, but also if it comes to other questions, like, you know, the forced vaccine and the vaccine mandates and everything. I, knew, I don't know if you're aware of it, but Austria, one day before the overturning of Roe v. Wade, got rid of the vaccine mandate. So thank God for this. Let's see how it will turn out in autumn, because we still have another law, which is bad. 
The interesting aspect, Austria also having the lowest number of vaccinated people in all of West, the Western world, uh, we did quite a good res resistance against this. The only reason why we got rid of this law was actually because tons of families decided to, as a family, resist this terror. As a family. So what did they do? They su suddenly started to um, connect each other in a way that they can help each other finding jobs finding good doctors, good physicians, finding um, a place where they can actually host events in the middle of lockdowns, because as you know, the first lockdown, obviously everyone was very cautious because we didn't know if what, what happened. And also we were also very cautious, but from the second lockdown, obviously we had to host events somewhere because if you don't see other people, you go, um, you know, you go um, um, mentally bankrupt in a way. So we organized this and suddenly all those families worked together and every family who managed to maintain actually a real family home, so a home which provides the place for more than two people, and also for the children, manages, managed actually to, to reshape this in a way that we could hold all, all our events there. Never in my life did I experience a secret ball. And you know, we're Viennese, we love balls. I experienced now two secret, three secret balls even. Never in my life did I experience a secret Christkindle market, which is the, the pre-Christmas time markets in Vienna, very, very famous. I did now experience this. Never in my life did I experience a solemn high mass in a private apartment. I did experience this quite a few times, by the way. Never in my life did I experience that suddenly people were able to say, no, I'm not... Um, I'm not continuing helping this terrible regime, even if I risk my job, just because the whole family supported them. It's the only reason why this worked. So interestingly, God gave us the possibility to prepare ourselves for the times ahead of us. How could the times ahead of us look like? First of all, now that the United States overturned, as the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, you will see now a huge fight about abortion in Europe popping up because whatever happens here always influences Europe and also the other way around, but especially from here to there. And you will see that abortion could be a major issue now in the next two years. I don't know if you're aware of that, but exactly one year before Roe v. Wade was overturned on the 24th, feast day of St. John the Baptist, uh, of the year 2021, abortion, um, there was a vote in the European Parliament stating that abortion is from now on considered a human right in the European Union. So where you get rid of abortion, we unfortunately introduce it as a human right, we, so the European Union. This is obviously not hard law, it's soft law, so now the different member states have to implement this themselves. But this law says something very interesting. It says that whoever says that abortion is not um, a women's right or it's not healthcare, whatever, is actually considered a terrorist. It says this in the text. It says, because, why? You have to follow the logic. Because abortion is part of women's rights. Which part of women's rights? Sexual and reproductive health and rights. That's what the United Nations calls them. It was decided in the 1980s, by the way, that this is the case. In 1990s, they then said, well, every woman has certain rights. So that's now considered women's rights in general. And as women are, as we all know, humans, that's also a human right. Then nothing happened for 10 years. And then in the 2000s, for the first time, they say, well, if it's a human right, then we have to put it on a list of essential human rights. And since this, these times, you will find lots of WHO helping packages actually having abortive pills inside, or condoms or other contraceptives. And also, some of them also officially... Um, 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 tools to perform an abortion. This already exists, as you know, for African countries especially, because you know the African population is growing so big. You always, as soon as you hear this, you you can always hear Margaret Sanger in your ear telling you, "Kill them all, kill them all." So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what we see right now happening is that not only is abortion considered a human right, but the fight against abortion is considered terrorism. 
let's follow this logic a little bit. If the fight against abortion is considered terrorism, what does happen with doctors who, because of their conscientious objections, do, do not want to perform an abortion? They are actually, it's also named in the document, are accused of um, not providing the help they have to provide. There's a certain term for it in, in German. I don't know the English term right now. Therefore, be actually um, accountable for, 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 um, for everything which can happen with the woman afterwards so they can be fined, actually, or even lose the doctor's license if they do not at least help a woman get an abortion. It's quite insane, isn't it? But that's, that's the modern logic. We now look at other aspects of European life right now, political life. We look at the LGBT movement. The LGBT movement is in an old times high, obviously. We now just introduced all those transgender rights in the last two or three years. When I was in school, I didn't even know the term. And I'm only, I just turned 29, so I'm only 29. It's 11 years ago when I'd left school. Nobody of us ever heard that you can change your sex or your gender, whatever you, however you call it in, in their ideology. Nobody of us heard this. This was not a thing in Europe. Right now, 30% of every European school pupils in the age between 12 and 18 de um, describe themselves as neither male nor female. In American high schools on, in, in California, they, the, the survey said even 50% say this. So just to give you an expression, you all know this problem, so we have them as well. Um, let's uh, go to another place. You know, I don't know you, if you ever talked about this whole Chinese social credit system, but right now in Europe they are in implementing social credit systems right now while we talk. Bologna already implemented it. It's voluntarily, so you don't have to do it yet. Um, um, and, and in Vienna it's going to be introduced in, in September, in Munich as well, in other parts of Germany as well, in France as well, even in the UK, by the way, even, the, even though the UK is no longer part of the European Union. So what does this mean? This means that if we combine, and I only use now two, those two examples of LGBT and, 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 and abortion movement, yes? Let's not talk about all the other terrible things like Islam and, and, and this whole anti-Catholic approach to religions in general, or the whole free speech issue, issue in general. Let's only talk about those two because it's easier to explain. This means that in the future, you will not be able to do any pro-life fight anymore as long as you are part of of, of this social credit system because it's considered to be terroristic therefore it's against the social credits and therefore it will what happens will be exactly what happens right now in china they would just take away your possibility to open a bank account to go to a school to do certain jobs and so on and so forth so in the future every fight we lead and you will see it will be an underground preparation and only an overground action so what does this mean well, god is very uh, god is uh, god is loving so he loves us i believe that he prepared the Europeans, uh, like the Americans, but I now want to talk especially about the German-speaking people, in a very beautiful way for these terrible, uh, terrible times ahead of us. He gave us, for the last two years, the possibility to practice, actually, what is the most important part of our life and how to organize it. God, the sacraments, the family, um, defending the priests, being there for the priests, etc. And he shows us something which is very interesting. Often we used to say in the last years, maybe not you, but at least, at least in Germany and Austria that's the case, we always used to say, well, I would love to, love to be a better Catholic, but my bishop is so bad. And yeah, the bishops are not very good, that's true. But at the end of the day, never, never, never one of the bishops is the reason why we don't live our faith. That's really not the case. The bishop can be the reason why it's very difficult to live our faith. The bishop normally should be the reason why it's very nice and easy to live our faith. If we look at the good bishops, like, you know, I'm very fond of um, Bishop Schneider or, or Cardinal, um, Cardinal Burke, for example, and other good bishops and, and cardinals who actually lift us up. But in general, uh, the bishops 
the persons who you know are in the offices of the bishops are not the reasons why you go to mass or why you don't go to go to mass. The reason why you go to mass is because you love God. Because you want to be with him, because you want to follow his commands. When he tells you go to mass every Sunday, and the church tells you, and if you have the possibility to go more often, go more often. Try to receive the Holy Eucharist quite often. Try to go to confession as often as possible, whenever, especially whenever something happens. Then this is our personal decision. What does this mean? In my eyes, it means that looking back to the last two thousand years, two thousand years, we saw that whenever the church was attacked, the laity's duty was never. To suddenly replace the priests or replace the bishops or whatever, but to serve them in the best way possible. So if we, for example, see, like in Germany, the bishops actually do really big nonsense and whatever they speak publicly is really not good. Our main answer to this should not be to make public fun of the bishops or say, well, this and this guy is ridiculous or an idiot or things like this. And I know that lots of people do this, but it's not good. Our main issue should be in order to preserve the very importance of the office of the bishop, to honor the bishop only in the in the in everything where, what he does good, obviously, and also to get distance to the bishop if you see that the bishop is actually harming the faith. What does this mean? A, dis a, a distance not rejection of the bishop, but the distance, means that you, um, for example, have a very bad father. Let's say one of, your, uh, one of the people here in the room, let's say me, has a father who hits, hits me. My father never did. My father is a wonderful person. But let's just imagine he hits me and hits me really heavily. And I really can't do anything against it. And I know it's unjust. And my father is a drunk, maybe. My father is not a drunk. He actually is one of those physicians who think only one glass of, uh, of, of red wine and that's it. Um, so, but let's just imagine this. At the end of the day, in order to honor my father, I have to uh, actually uh, maintain a bigger distance in order to not um, 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 do, let him do the sin he commits by actually hitting his own child, in a, as wrongly hitting his own child. What should I also do for him? I have to pray for him every day. I have to honor him for every good thing he does, for every good thing he does. And this will then lead to a way better outcome than if I would say, well, that my father is such a bad person, it's just because he's a per, se a, bad, a per se a bad human, and therefore I do not honor my father anymore, but I just reject him. You cannot reject your father, it's your father still. And we can learn from the life of the lives of the saints. For example, Saint Vitus. I don't know if you're aware of him. Saint Vitus was um, a martyr of the first, uh, I think, of the fourth century, who had a pagan father, and the father sent him to get uh, to, to get teachers, um, you know, because he couldn't take uh, take care of him. He was very busy in government. And the teachers St. Vitus had were Catholics. So they raised him Catholic, they got, he got baptized, he got confirmed, and all of this. Then he returned to the father after being at his, as his more or less parents, uh, his spiritual parents. And the father heard that he was Catholic, and he punished him very heavily. And St. Vitus did not dishonor his father for this. He said, this is wrong. And he even ran, went away from his father for a second, but he never said, because he did this, he's not my father anymore. But it, instead, he started to pray very, very hard for him. Then the father saw this, and he was so aggressive that he put St. Vitus, put him in front of the governor, he was a friend of him, told the governor, now you, governor, tell him what a good you know, Roman anti-Catholic then does. And the governor, the governor nearly killed him. He, um, he punished him so hard that St. Vitus nearly died. And so the, the, the spiritual fathers of uh, parents of St. Vitus took him away and fled with him to a different part of Italy. 
way he lived then and grew a little bit more. Up until the emperor back then, the Roman Empire, I don't know which, which one this was, had a dream that his very sick son could only be healed by a certain person in a certain place and therefore actually found out that St. Vitus is someone who could actually help his son and then St. Vitus was brought to Rome. St. Vitus was with the sick son. St. Vitus asked Christ for help, prayed our father and everything and the son got actually healed. And the emperor was so happy about it that he said, Oh, that's so wonderful. Vitus, how, how did you do it? And he said, I didn't do it. It was Christ. And so the emperor killed him immediately. <laughs> what is, would we now say, well, St. Vitus was stupid? No, he was not. He never dishonored his father. Never, never, never. In the whole life. He went away from his father when it was just too heavy, you know, when his father was nearly about to kill him through another, hand, through another person's hand. He went away. He always prayed for his father. At the end of the day, he ended up as being one of the biggest saints of those times in, those er in this area where he was. And up until today, he's honored in all of Italy, San Vito, San Vito, you know, in every second country in Italy, you will find 10 San Vitos. In every part of Austria, Sankt Veit is in Austria, in really every second valley, you will find Sankt Veit, and in some parts of Germany as well. So this man, by being actually obedient in a good way, and and in the same way, rejecting the bad things of his father and going away in order not to give him possibility to sin again, made a wonderful, wonderful thing. And let's learn from those saints and let's now look at our times. The bishops are also more or less fathers. They are what we call um, um, shepherds, you know. And obviously we know that the bishop actually should even take care of the one sheep who goes away and should actually follow it and help it and so on. And we see the bishop instead standing there and not doing anything. It doesn't help us if we now go ahead and say, because the bishops are bad, that's the reason why I now can't live my Catholic life anymore. What we can do instead is we can actually see, well, the bishop right now is not treating our priests well. So what we can do is we have to treat our priests very well. We have to take care of them. We have to find ways in order to support them, also financially, obviously, but not only financially, also by providing chapels, for example, as we saw in the last two years. This was unfortunately very necessary. And today I had the great honor to talk with Father Vincent Wu, who told me that the whole, the whole Chinese underground church works that way. You always have families, and the families provide the place. That's where the priest sleeps, that's where the mass is celebrated. So yeah, we know that this works actually in dictatorship. And if you ever talked, uh, the, the, the honor to talk to Bishop Schneider, Bishop Schneider tell, tells you the same about his own, own family history, that they hosted priests in secret and the priests actually celebrated Mass in secret and so on. And I think if what our enemies want to achieve right now in Europe will happen, then the Germans and the Austrians are not people you should consider as being lost completely. They're really, really good families out there and they organize this resistance and they help organizing this resistance without making fun of the hierarchy, without being disobedient to the hierarchy as, as such, and especially without um, stopping to follow Christ. Because that's the most bad answer you could get. You know, it's more or less the Protestant answer to the whole problem. So let's now try to put this a little bit in a nutshell. I know it's, it, it might sound a little bit boring what I now said, because it's, it's, it's all those little details you might already know and you all experience them yourself. But let's now see how can, what can we learn from this resistance of, of the past 2,000 years. In the past 2,000 years, whenever something happens, let's look at the Vendée fight. Let's look at the fight from the Tyrol, of the Tyrolians against Napoleonic troops in Tyrol 200 years ago. Let's look at the times of Christian um, um, suppression and, and, and the, uh, how do you call it, um, 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 I don't have the word right now, but you know, if you, if you try to persecute, thank you, Christian persecution, um, in the first centuries, the answer to all of this was always strong families. That's the answer. 
The strong families are what actually helps this whole thing survive. The reason why this wonderful organization, we are here, and thank you very much for having me today as a speaker. The reason why this wonderful organization, Cosmos of Tradition, family and property, is because this is exactly the, 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 what we should do right now. Tradition, what does it mean? Especially, especially following the tradition of the Catholic Church. This also means right, really practically going to traditional mass. This also means practically following the traditional teaching of the church. This also means maintaining your own good Catholic traditions and not only Catholic as such, but also your own good family traditions is also very important. Then we come to the next step, family. That's how God wants us to live here on earth. He wants us to live in a family. And as you know, if you're a priest, for example, priests consider the other priests also as family. I don't know if you know about this, but that's the reason why, why you know, the way they call each other. The head of an order is called father, and the others are the brothers, and things like this. So you see that this, all this is like a family. Everything is like a family. And then you have property. Just talking about the German situation, now I come back to why I explained to you why there's a difference between Austria and Germany right now. The reason why in Austria such a priestly seminary is Heilingards, even though, by the way, it's not perfect, but it's better than all the others, can exist is only because of private property. If the Austrian church would look like the German church so that the monastery do not have any private property anymore. No monastery in Germany could do this because immediately every diocese or every government will tell them, well, no, you don't do it. We don't give you the money for it. And here as Americans, obviously you understand this very well as the American church is more or less mainly funded by you, by the people who attend church. But that's not the case in Austria and Germany, as you know. It's old money and church tax right now. So it's forced from you, which is not good. It should be given freely, as you know. But that's a different discussion. So what we see is that actually those three aspects, following tradition, maintaining your family life and nourishing it and letting it grow. By the way, that's also very important in the whole corona discussion. I know it's a huge question, you know, if you're vaccinated or not, if you, follow, if you wear the mask or not and so on. We should never get ourselves uh, divided over this. Even if in our families we have people who hate us for not being whatever they want us to be, this should never get us divided. It's really, really, that's what exactly what the enemy wants. The enemy wants you to hate your family. You should love your family. So just remind yourself of everything good this relative ever did to you and try to maintain a relationship based on the good things they did and not based on the bad things they did. And property. It's important for us as families to maintain our wealth and our property not because we want to have the better ham on our bread or we have to want to have the better and bigger sausages than others have. That's not the reason why we maintain wealth. We maintain wealth in order for us to be independently and freely able to honor God to honor God, to manage, to maintain everything in a way that actually honors God. Beautiful, good, and true, as we know. So I think that this is actually quite an attractive answer, and I'll end my speech with this. But please be reminded, in Germany and Austria, this answer is known by many people. And if you ever come to Austria and Germany, never hesitate to write me a little email. I will talk just for a second about St. Boniface Institute at the end. And just whenever you visit any part of Austria, especially, write me a little email and say, well, where's the local traditional community? Even if you don't find it online on the map anymore, believe me, it still exists. Every traditional community which they turn down, except maybe one or two little ones, all exist. Every one of them. And you all have the priests everywhere. And you can still go there and you will see they are very, very, very good priests and very, very good people. Thank you very much for your, um, for your time. I hope it was not too boring. I will add something about St. Boniface Institute after this. But um, I hope I got you, uh, gave you a good impression of Austria and Germany right now.
uh, let me explain a little bit of what St. Boniface Institute maybe now. So St. Boniface Institute was founded as an idea about five years ago and was then uh, actually made real after the Pachamama thing happened because suddenly so many people wanted to be in touch with us and not knowing who it did back then and we did not want to publish our names and then we had to publish our names when certain people started to tell um, others that they did it uh, in order to harm the pope harm the papacy was one of the official reasons or one of the non as uh, one of the guys who did not do it actually said that he did it and then i together with a priest and we had a very long talk about it decided to go public with this and as we did not want people to support us personally because even though it's always nice to have money that's not the whole purpose of such a thing we decided to use this support in order to create a traditional organization which actually is in uh, which actually has the, had the idea of helping traditional groups to grow in a very active way how do we do how how are we doing this normally so first we started by just visiting him uh, visiting all the traditional groups in europe and you would not imagine this but they are huge traditional groups have you ever heard of swedish catholic traditionals there's a youth group with more than 400 members there Nobody knows this. It's huge. It's huge. It's really huge. Believe me, for Swedish things, it's huge. So, for example, we visited them. Or oh, there's this huge group in Münster and, in, and one in Cologne right now. Clemens' family, actually, they, 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 when, when, when his family is now involved in, in the Cologne traditional um, um, church, which did not exist more or less 20 years ago. It's completely new. And all those. So we visited them and organized conferences and speeches in order to get them a little bit more active. And our whole plan was always to get them away from the idea that they need a certain organization in order to fight for the truth. So we said, you do not need a certain organization. You need people behind you forming a solid community. So you need especially your family. And then you need a good community of friends also around you. And the best aspect, it would be best if it's not only friends, but also their family supporting you. So the whole goal is normally finding, also finding who the people are who actually want to do something and encouraging them to do it not alone, but with their families. And that's actually turned out to be a quite good idea. And after the corona uh, destroyed this, we were very much active in Austria, organizing the whole underground church, more or less, where we thought we are the big heroes of Austria. At the end of the day, we turned, we turned out to be one of thousand groups doing this. So actually, Austria is still pretty good, it seems. And, and then we decided that it's very important, um, following actually Professor Blinio's um, uh, uh, scriptures, which I read back then again with, with this friend of mine, you also know, Mr. Fetter. And, and we found out that in order for the people to understand where everything comes from, we have to show them how revolution works. So what we did is we did a huge study on every big major issue we normally fight against. Um, I mentioned a few of them already and showed that every of these major issues actually follows the same ideas, the same rotten and very bad ideas. So then we gave a few speeches to the people and tried to encourage them to follow a little bit more their, their natural understanding of things and, their, um, and what we call the sensus fidei, and it turned out that actually lots of people understand this. And this whole idea we had heard before, and I guess especially you gentlemen, you heard this a few times, I guess, well, you have to focus on one topic, don't you? Why are you doing pro-life work and this and this and this? And normally people ask you and say, well, focus on one of those topics. And we as Catholics know there is no such thing as one of those topics. It's God or resisting against God, which means following really the devil in his big no to God and to, his, to, to God's order. So at the end of the day, we, we, we try to nourish a little bit the understanding that the whole fight against the revolution must be really a counter-revolutionary fight in general. It cannot be only a fight against one of the aspects of revolution. That's as if, let's say, you have a broken car 
because it just ran into a wall and you start fixing the tire and say now the car is working again. That's not how it works. You have to work on the whole thing and not just on one. And we are not the ones who can understand the whole problem, but God does. So to combat the next problem we always face, the conservatives nobody hate each other. And, you know, we always have this thing, leftists all fight together. And, and, and we always say, why do the leftists manage to fight together so well? But we always fight each other. That's very, very easy to understand. Leftists want to destroy something. If, for example, we all together decide to destroy this house, we don't do it. I'm, I'm not going to encourage anyone. <laughs> then actually it would be very easy, wouldn't it be? If you, decision. Yeah. <laughs> if, you know, there's a sword behind you. I'm, I'm very careful here. So if we would decide to destroy a house like this, then, and, and you all would be part of my team destroying it, I don't care what you actually do. Some of you would use a hammer, some of them would use this chair, some of you them suddenly pull out their guns and shoot at the walls or whatever. And some of you maybe have a rocket launcher in this car and then destroys the whole thing. If we would decide to build up this house together, we would not manage to build even one wall if you would not have a very strict hierarchy uh, among us. Without a hierarchy, it would be impossible to build such a house. Completely impossible. And the problem is, as long as conservative or so-called conservatives try to do anything without God, or trying to say, well, God is important, but not in political life, because that's where the conservative party is more important or whatever, then they immediately actually put their own ideas first. And so they can only fight each other. Whereas if they would say, well, God comes first, and let me please God Almighty, be your tool in this fight. Suddenly God knows exactly how to use you. And suddenly one of you will lay the bricks and the other one will prepare you know, the wiring. And at the end of the day, suddenly a house actually stands here. And that's, I think, the biggest difference. And this is the whole goal of St. Boniface Institute was never to become an organization which is important as a name. So it's not important to be a member of St. Boniface Institute. That's the reason why we do not allow members. It's not important to be part of, part of, um, part of our group or something like this. It's also not important. It's just important to be reminded that we should do God's work on a daily basis when we get up, up until the moment we sleep. And every, as you know, um, if we sleep, we also do God's work, God's work because we do not commit any sins sleeping normally. <laughs> so that's quite good. So that's more or less what sums up St. Boniface Institute. And in the last years, uh, in the last year, what happened was we were very politically active. So we saw, uh, we saw that actually young men want to do something, and especially young men, and they need leaders. And so what we said is we, uh, as, uh, when we can be the leaders, we are the leaders. So we just said, well, there's a huge fight against our personal freedom with the whole vaccine mandates and especially the rules around the vaccine mandates. So we were very active in the fight against the vaccine mandates. I uh, was giving a few speeches, etc., And we found out that this is not possible if we just lead the fight. So what we did two years ago in order to prepare our whole fight was we started the public rosary procession. We said that every second Wednesday back then, we do a rosary procession asking Our Lady for help, for intercession, and asking really God Almighty to lead us in this battle against evil. And we did this since now two, two years, even more than two years. It started on the 13th of May, 2020. And after one and a half years, this became viral in Europe and, and especially in Germany and Austria, but especially in Austria. And so in Austria right now, we have a public rosary in over 500 cities of Austria, which is, Austria is not very big. It's really, really big. So more or less if you would, and, and, and it's really beautiful. Because what it makes is very interesting. I, I just said we want to be tools in the hands of our Lord. And if you if you use the rosary, that's actually when we follow Mary's example. 
because we always spray this, you know, and we always ask Mary for intercession all the time. And that makes us, makes it more easy to follow Mary's example. And Mary's example is a perfect yes to God. We cannot give the same perfect yes. We know this, but we can try to give it as good as possible. And that's what happens through the rosary. And the rosary actually is the reason in my eyes why all the good things which happened in the last two years happen, uh, happened. We have a huge group of priests right now huge group of priests to decide it. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter how big the government will go down on them if they are not vaccinated. Now this is gone. Thank God. I think we really have to thank God for it. I think he made this happen. Um, a huge priest uh, group. So it's uh, about 200 priests already, only in the Eastern Austrian region, which is very good. Taking, we, we talk about only a few million people, like three million people, and, uh, and 200 priests for three million people is actually quite good. And so that's what we did. And we started a few networks. We're now working on a homeschooling support system so that people who want to get their children out of school because the schools are too perverted have the possibility to actually manage to do this. We started a networking system where people, if they need jobs or if they need good physicians, they can go there and so on. So that's more or less work of St. Bonner's Institute. Our work is nothing else than understanding that society is nothing which exists artificially. Our enemies, the devil, can never create society. It's impossible. Society is created by families. And family, and you know what family is. A family is the marriage between a man and a woman and their children. And then in a bigger way, all their descendants and all the, the relatives of them. Thank you, uh, Mr. Shuguel. Please give him another hearty round of applause. Thank you for joining us on Echo of Fidelity. Visit our website at tfpstudentaction.org. God bless.